2: and welcome to another Thought Talk radio show. I'm Neil Bradley. My co-host this evening, Joe Quinn and Jason Martin. Thanks. Hi there. Okay. The Cold War is a historical episode that is, well, behind us. And yet, here we are today listening to Western leaders make statements that leave people in no doubt that they think the Cold War either never ended or has restarted. So what was the original Cold War anyway? How did it start? And what can it tell us about Cold War II, quote-unquote? Joining us today is Peter Kuznick. Peter is a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University in Washington. He is author of Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America, co-author of Rethinking the Atomic Bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japanese and American Perspectives, co-author of Nuclear Power and Hiroshima, The Truth Behind the Peaceful Use of Nuclear Power, and co-editor of Rethinking Cold War Culture. Peter actually founded American University's Nuclear, Nuclear Studies Institute in 1995, and every summer since then, he's taken some of the students on a study abroad class to Kyoto, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki. Nagasaki. He's only just returned from this year's trip, so he may still be We've a jet lagged. (laughs) Peter is probably best known to all of our listeners for co authoring with film director and documentary producer Oliver Stone the ten part Showtime documentary film series and book called The Untold History of the United States. He regularly provides commentary for US and international media and we're delighted to have him with us today on Sub Talk Radio. So a very big welcome to you, Peter.
3: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
2: Great to have you here. Indeed. Well, straight off the bat, did you ever think, as someone studying Cold War as a historical piece of history, that uh, it would be coming back to haunt us?
3: Well, you know, it comes back in a a transmogrified form. It doesn't Mm -hmm. come back the way the original one looked, but that doesn't make it any less insidious or any less dangerous. In many ways, the Cold War never ended in the sense that we thought there was going to be a peace dividend, and we never got that peace dividend. In fact, when the original Cold War ended, uh, Colin Powell, who's one of the more sane members of the foreign policy establishment, said that the United States has got to hang a shingle shingle outside its door that says superpower lives here. There was a vision on the part of American policymakers that now that the Soviet Union was over, we could act without regard for anybody else. So we could simply assert that the United States could simply assert its its views on the rest of the world. And so at the same time that George H.W. Bush was praising Gorbachev for his restraint in Eastern Europe, the United States immediately invades Panama. Uh, kills thousands in Panama. Uh, supposedly, it has now become so urgent to overthrow Manuel Noriega, who had been the CIA's errand boy in Central America for uh, decades before that. And then the U.S. wastes little time in invading uh, Kuwait, uh, attacking the Iraqi forces in, in the Gulf War there. And so we see the same pattern developing in both of those situations. Um, the United States is basically lying the country. American leaders are basically lying the country into war in both cases. In the case of uh, Iraq, uh, the United States convinced the Saudis that there were thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi troops lined up on the Saudi border ready to invade Saudi Arabia. They convinced the Saudis to let American troops into the Holy Land in order to save them from an invasion by Iraq. There was a series of articles in the U.S. and around the rest of the world showing the satellite photos of the border there and showing that there were no Iraqi troops lined up on those borders. So the conclusion that we had to draw was those who were doctored photos. Then in the United States, because the public was reticent then about invading and uh, fighting the first Gulf War, the uh, Kuwaiti, with their special congressional hearings, he's in Congress, not of an official committee, but unofficial committee, and they, I call it as a witness, a 14-year-old Kuwaiti girl who said that she was in the hospitals, in, working in a hospital in Kuwait when the Iraqi troops came in and they pulled the babies off incubators and left them on the floor to die. George H.W. Bush started making speeches about this as a sign of the inhumanity and the bestiality of the Iraqis and why it was so essential that the United States invade and, and overthrow the government, overthrow the forces that were in Kuwait. Uh, and it later turns out that she was not some innocent girl who was in the hospital there. She was the daughter of the kuwaiti ambassador to the united states she was being coached by hill and knowlton the leading public relations firm and the whole thing was a hoax did that make any difference certainly not to george hw bush who went touting this all over the country and talking about saddam as, as a new hitler so, so this is the context about the cold war not even ending when the soviet union collapsed the United States quickly begins to build up its forces and thinks that it has the uh, capability for asserting and a kind of unvarnished hegemony that it had wanted throughout the Cold War. Neil, are you there? Uh, Hello, I think I've lost you. Hello, the intro.
1: Um, Hello. Hey, Peter. Sorry about that. We we lost you there for a second or two. Um. So you were talking about uh, Kuwait. Um,
3: uh, yes yeah, yeah, so let me know where where you lost me because I went on not knowing right there, you were gone oh, wait, yeah.
4: you had just gone past the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter testifying before yeah. Congress
3: and uh, George H.W. Bush cited that repeatedly to show the brutality and barbarity of the Iraqis uh, as a justification for the U.S. invasion and that helped shift public opinion because the public was very divided about this. Uh, so the point that I was trying to make in terms of the both the invasion of Panama and the invasion of Kuwait was that the United for the United States, the Cold War never ended. The United yeah. States saw this as an opportunity to assert itself in ways that it hadn't been able to do since the Cold War began.
2: Yeah, the continuity, is the same pattern. But
3: I would—I'll try to argue with you.
2: The difference in this case is that where the Cold War is, the narrative is that it's about keeping communism—you know, the USSR—at bay. In this case, you're talking about two countries that have nothing to do with Russia, right?
3: Exactly. Uh, In some ways, the Cold War was misunderstood, because uh, certainly the question of Communism was relevant to America's capitalist policymakers, but uh, not quite as relevant as, as we sometimes think. Uh, i like to cite George Kennan, who really it was the, in many ways the architect of a Cold War for the United States. He uh, designed America's containment policy. And Kennan said in a secret memo in 1948, he said the United States controls 50% of the world's wealth, but it only contains 6.3% of the world's population. He said that, that the challenge facing American policymakers in the next period is how to maintain that position of disparity. And he said we can't do it with idealism. We can't do it by trying to spread freedom and democracy. He said what we have to do is deal with hard, cold power concepts, And the United States has got to assert itself to maintain that position of disparity. And that's, that's on one level, much more what the Cold War was about. Uh, Behind the cloak of ideology surrounding anti-communism, at heart it was a battle between the first world and the third world. And in that battle, we see the results of it now. According to the United Nations and Oxfam's recent reports, the richest, 85%, the richest 85 people in the world have more wealth than the poorest, 3.5 billion. That's the result of the Pax Americana. That's the result of maintaining the, power, the kinds of relations that allowed the United States to assert itself militarily, culturally, intellectually, politically, financially, economically. And so we've, we've got a world in which a, a handful of fabulously wealthy people uh, actually uh, are able to usurp so much of the world's resources at the same time that much of the world's population goes hungry, goes without clean water, goes without sanitation. Uh, the, the percentage, for example, in India of people who still do not have indoor plumbing, something like over two-thirds of the population of India still doesn't have indoor plumbing. So, so that's the, the result of this kind of discrepancy.
2: Uh, that's an astonishing ratio. 85 individuals, yeah, compared with it's, it's, ah, it, it, of the world's it's population.
3: It's obscene. It's simply obscene.
2: It's the definition of oligarchy. Uh,
3: <laughs> yes, and they maintain the this, right? They maintain this in the same way they did throughout the Cold War. A combination of uh, hegemony in the Gramscian sense, uh, uh, with uh, military force where necessary, and economic domination where where possible. This goes back in the United States. We can trace this back to, which which Oliver Stone and I do in our untold history, we trace it back to the 1890s, although it takes on a much more extreme form with the end of World War II. Well,
2: that's probably the place to start, although, yeah, we we could be going back to the 19th century. Um, That situation at
4: the end of you got a question? Well, I was going to say that I do have a question. I think that, you know, uh, I am very, very interested in the genesis in the 1890s, if he can say just a little bit on the topic uh, before we move on to World War II, because uh, you do get a lot of coverage of, you know, from what happened after the defeat of the Nazis and the kind of like the, the problems that Europe had after the, after the Second Great War. There's a lot of information out there about that, but... What about the 1890s? What was the stuff leading up to that which put America in the position to be where it's at today? I'm, kind of, I'm mm-hmm. very interested in
3: that. You uh, can uh, answer. Sure. Sure, <clears throat> sure, I'd love to. Uh, you have to remember that in the United States, in the 1870s and 1880s, there was a very strong and fairly radical labor movement. Uh, we had the uh, National Railroad Strikes in 1877, We have the rise of the Knights of Labor, which was an anti-capitalist labor federation in the 1880s that exploded between July 1st, 1885 and July 1st, 1886. It jumped from 110,000 members to over 700,000 members, maybe 800,000 members almost overnight. And, And American workers during this time did not think that capitalism was the wave of the future. They didn't think it was morally justifiable. There was this very strong anti-capitalist sentiment among American workers, as there was among workers throughout most of the world in the late 19th century. The United States went into a major depression in 1893, by far the worst depression up to that point. And there were really two basic ways of, of viewing uh, solving that depression. One called for redistribution of wealth, so that workers could afford to buy America's surplus products that were being produced by America's factories during that time, because American industry was booming in the late late 19th century, uh, but it exceeded the amount that American workers could purchase and consume. So the the alternative that was decided upon by policymakers, rather than redistributing wealth so that workers could buy the products here at home, was looking for markets overseas overseas. The search for markets beginning in the late 1890s is going to really shape American foreign policy. And we see a major turning point in 1898 in the Spanish-American War, which the United States easily defeated Spain. Uh, But one front of that war was in the Philippines. The United States had been uh, a republic up to that point. The United States had a lot of democratic tendencies. There was slavery, of course. There was genocide of Native Americans. There were a lot of bad things going on. But American people embraced a vision of democracy and republicanism. In 1899, the United States intervened militarily to crush the Filipino insurrection. There was a popular government in the Philippines under Emilio Aguinaldo that expected the democratic United States to support it in its right to rule and its quest for independence at home in the Philippines. The United States took the opposite tack. The United States sent troops into the Philippines, fought a bloody war against the popular forces there, and, for the United, and, and the kinds of things the United States did, torture, waterboarding. It was probably the United States' first experience of waterboarding long before Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo. And the United States crushed the Filipino insurrection in the 1890s and early 1900s, that put the United States on a path toward a very, very different direction. The United States is going to eventually become the world's leading counter-revolutionary force. In the 19th century, the United States still was pro-revolution and still supported uprisings around the world. So the United States takes a different course beginning in the late 1890s, and we haven't seen the United States depart from that course throughout the Cold War, throughout the 20th century. The United States begins intervening repeatedly. Uh, We intervene into the Boxer Rebellion in China, send troops there. The United States intervenes repeatedly throughout Central America and Latin America. There's uh, country after country. The United States occupies, sends troops, tries to tame rebellions, defeat revolutionary forces, support American business interests. This is the pattern throughout well, still the pattern, and although Latin America has finally rebelled against the U.S. gunboat diplomacy and that kind of domination. But so the United States was going against this tradition. It's interesting. if you look at the 1900 election in the United States, you've got William McKinley, the Republican, and you have William Jennings Bryant, the Democrat. And Bryant made very, very, very clear uh, that the country would have to choose between being a republic and being an empire. He said, as many Americans believed at the time, the United States can't be both. If it becomes an empire, it's got to maintain strong standing armies. It's got to start developing a global bureaucracy. It's got to impose its will on peoples around the the world. And Americans were strongly opposed to that, although McKinley did get elected in 1900. So you can say that uh, his vision did get the support of the majority at that time. But there's always been this tension in the United States, which gets back to what we call American exceptionalism the belief on the part of american policymakers and much of the american public that the united states is unique it's exceptional it's god's gift to humanity it's different than all other countries all the countries are motivated by selfishness and greed and territorial aggrandizement and geopolitical domination but the Americans actually believe, it might be laughable to you, but the American, American public believes that the United States goes out in the world motivated by benevolence, altruism, generosity, and just wants to uh, expand freedom and liberty. And, you know, and the United States has not been, American people have not been able to, to see themselves and their history more realistically, which is why Oliver Stone and I did our Untold History Project.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, as you say, people in America only believe that because that's what's been told. They've been taught
3: that as part of the, the air that they breathe, it's the water they drink. It's, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's something and that, that you, you are taught from the time you're very young in America's schools and American media and American newspapers. Everybody buys into this assumption. And it, Maybe a little it bit does. less now.
1: Yeah, but but it was delivered, and to to the extent that it's still done today, it's done deliberately, I would presume, by uh, the establishment, if I can call them that. I mean, surely this is something that's thought about in terms of sending the right message, or do you think it's just a a kind of a natural human... It's
3: something that every American president, beginning with Truman, has articulated and espoused uh, right up through Obama. This is something that you see over and over again in American political rhetoric. Uh, a good example, I mean, it goes back before that, it was Woodrow Wilson after Versailles who said, now the world will see America as the savior of the world. This idea is very deeply ingrained that the United States is the world's savior, that the United States is the only moral nation in the world. We see it more recently with Uh, Madeleine Albright, when she was Secretary of State in the late 1990s, she says, if we use force, it's because we're the United States of America. We are the indispensable nation. We stand tall and see further than other countries into the future. But that same thing, Hillary Clinton uses that term, the uh, indispensable nation. Robert Gates calls us the indispensable nation. Barack Obama, over and over again, the same kind of rhetoric, the same assumptions about the United States exceptionalism. It's a dangerous uh, mentality. And it uh, also blinds, blinds us as a country to what the realities are and what our history has been.
1: Yeah, it's, it's quite insidious because, obviously, it's quite an appealing uh, idea for yeah, many people. Yes, exactly. You know, it's
3: very comforting to schoolchildren. Yeah. It's well, not, I'm, it's I'm not I'm comforting I'm, to all the people the United States has bombed and exactly. repressed and invaded. Uh, to maintain its position of of domination.
4: What I find particularly interesting about that is that if you really think about it, America and even Europe in a certain sense, they are fundamentally the most dispensable uh, group of countries in the world. If, If suddenly all of them were to disappear, the rest of the world, which does all the work and manufactures everything, would get along just fine. <laughs> they wouldn't have so many rich white people to sell to, but for the most part, I mean, America is the most dispensable nation in the entire world right now. They are. They contribute almost nothing to to the world to the world economy, except um, I don't know. They don't even really have that much money anymore. They're just debt, debt, debt.
3: Well, the United States actually. Well, it contributes energy, and it still actually has surprisingly uh, large amount of uh, manufacturing because you don't see it like you used to. Uh, there was uh, I remember growing up and we used to talk about something was labeled made in Japan that, that <laughs> signified that it was cheap junk that nobody wanted. Uh, now, uh, made in Japan means the highest quality electronics and manufacturing and quality control. You know, the attitude... Has changed. We see China developing very, very high-quality products also, uh, the United States and Europe, but, but Europe began to fade quite early in the sense that uh, World War I was in large part a war not to make the world safe for democracy, not the war to end all wars, but in a war to redivide the spoils of empire around the globe, that's why uh, the Sykes-Picot Treaty and, and why when Lenin and Trotsky opened up the Soviet Russian foreign ministry and let, let go all of those documents, the secret treaties that had been developed between the Russians and England and France before the war started, people were shocked by that. But that, that was what the world, that war was about in large part was redistributing the spoils of empire. The results were devastating for for Europe. It was a horrendous war, a war marked by trench warfare and poison gas. And I mean, literally half of the young men of France of fighting age were killed in that war. Part of why France uh, capitulated so easily and pathetically in, in, to the Nazis in World War Two.
1: And when you say redistribute the spoils of empire, you mean the spoils of uh, the British, um, partly the British, the Russian, and the Ottoman Empire, for example, and largely towards the U.S. Is that true?
3: Not directly. Um, The United States, Wilson is is an interesting character, because Wilson, on some level, we talk about Wilsonian idealism, and on some blind level, Wilson was idealistic, as much as Lloyd George or Clemenceau so ridiculed him for. You know, they would say, uh, Wilson has got 14 points. Why, God Almighty, only had 10. You know, they, they they thought Wilson was was an incredible, insufferable windbag, which he certainly could be. But he did want a world that in which there there was going to be uh, more openness. The the British and the French at Versailles resisted that. They wanted to maintain their position, their own advantages, and they also wanted very heavy reparations from the Germans. In fact, the Germans ended up paying twice as much reparations as they anticipated going in. But the Germans agreed to surrender based upon the idea that Wilson's 14 points were going to guide the post-war deliberations. We soon Mm -hmm. see that that's not going to be the case and that, that we are going to maintain a new... New empires, and the United States even agrees to be to take control of the trusteeship over Armenia. So it's uh, I mean the the World War One was resolved in a way that was almost inevitably going to lead to World War Two, but the Mm -hmm. Europeans did divide up those colonies, and they did maintain domination. And some of the the results of those policies in the Middle East we're still dealing with today.
1: The the, uh, the US though did uh, after the First World War or as a result of the First World War they did profit quite well I think because um, I think uh, there's a book I, I was reading called uh, Super Imperialism and I can't remember the author's name but he was saying that basically after the First World War the US uh, had supplied a lot of loans to European uh, yeah. nations and also a lot of uh, arms, uh, weapons to fight the war and In in a break with tradition up until then, um, the U.S. basically called in the debts for all of those loans and uh, supply of arms to France, the U.K. and Germany. And and by all accounts, they made out, the U.S. made out quite well as a result of that, while the the U.K., France and in particular Germany were pretty much, uh, you know, rendered uh, penniless almost, you know.
3: Yeah, well, what happens is that the center of world finance shifts from London to New York after, mm. with the end of World War One, The United States comes out of both wars far better than anybody else. Uh, the British and the French had suffered terribly in World War One in terms of the devastating casualties that, that they took, uh, but they also were financially dependent upon the United States the morgan banks, especially become the bankers to britain and the the loans to the allies to britain and france are enormous morgan the u.s loans to germany and its allies were minuscule so it was clear to people who were paying attention which side the united states was going to come into the war on when it came into the war and after the war the european economies were largely devastated and the american economy was was thriving was booming Uh, and the question was, are the United States, U.S. banks going to be able to recoup their loans to Europe? Mm-hmm. The post-war system is established on a very fragile and irrational basis. The United States begins extending loans to Germany so that Germany can pay back its debts to Britain and France, so that Britain and France can pay back their debts to the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. And when
3: that begins, uh, but the Germany is being forced to pay such heavy reparations, the war guilt clause and Germany gets uh, tagged with responsibility for the war and has to pay back these enormous reparations to Britain and France. Uh, and, the, and Germany actually was not able to pay back its reparations, so they would roll over the loans and they would ease the terms in order to, uh, so that Germany was able to avoid paying some of the most egregious damages that were expected of it. But the, the whole system was based on this house of cards which finally mm-hmm. does collapse in 1929 when the international mm-hmm. m- uh, monetary system and, and, and trade collapses. So we, we see that throughout the world, this vast global depression, but it was foreseeable <coughs> given, given uh, the structure of the post-war world. And Germany expected to pay that back after having lost some of its prized industrial and other resources.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Maybe we maybe we'll jump forward a little bit to uh, to the Second World War now because one of the, one of the most um, interesting for me anyway uh, parts of the of your documentary um, is the situation with Wallace mm-hmm. as as the vice president and his potential candidacy for uh, for president. Uh, and you talk in in the, in the documentary. You talk about um, this guy uh, Pepper who, the way you describe it, he basically kind of subverts the democratic process, you know, uh, at, at, the, at the convention by, by and, and effectively thwarts uh, Wallace's nomination for, uh, for, for to be president. Um, so before we get into that, maybe you could talk a little bit about just who Wallace was and uh, why he features kind of quite prominently in the documentary.
3: Henry Wallace is one of those rare. American leaders who could see the world through the eyes of U.S. adversaries. Americans tend to have a certain blindness, a certain myopia, uh, which they only see the world as it looks to the United States and U.S. interests. Wallace was a different breed. He came from a prominent farm family in Iowa. His father had been Secretary of Agriculture throughout the 1920s, His grandfather was a dominant figure in farming in Iowa nationally, and Wallace uh, was chosen by Roosevelt in 1932 to become his first Secretary of Agriculture in the New Deal administration. Wallace builds up an extraordinary record as Secretary of Agriculture, and when Roosevelt is running for his third term in 1940, you have to remember that that was unprecedented, No American president has ever served more than two four-year terms. but Roosevelt knew that that war was imminent and Mm -hmm. decided to run for a third term to break with precedent. But he wanted somebody on the ticket as vice president who was a real progressive and an anti-fascist. And Wallace was probably the leading anti-fascist in the New Deal administration. He had close ties to the scientists. He was outraged by racism uh, and really uh, had a a progressive view of the world. So Roosevelt insisted on Wallace as vice president. However, the Democratic Party bosses, you have to remember that in this period, the party bosses largely ran the parties. And the party bosses decided that they didn't want Wallace on the ticket. He was too radical in his views for the party bosses. Uh, And so they refused to put him on the ticket as vice president. Roosevelt, who already had the nomination for president, wrote a letter to the convention turning down the nomination, saying that we already have one Wall Street-dominated conservative party in the United States, the Republican Party, and if the Democratic Party has any reason to exist, it has to be a liberal party committed to social justice and progress. Uh, and he says, uh, if you, basically, if you don't give me Wallace, then I'm not going to run as standard bearer for the Democratic Party. Eleanor Roosevelt saw how serious he was. She went to the convention floor the first time a first lady had ever done so and informed the delegates that if they didn't put Wallace on the ticket as vice president, then Franklin was not going to run. Uh, they, the, they caved in. They put Wallace on as vice president. And as vice president, he was, again, extraordinary because he was a visionary. And in 1941, Henry Luce announced that the, Luce was the head of the Time Life publishing uh, conglomerate, he was America's leading publisher at the time, and he said the 20th century must be the American century. The United States was going to dominate the world in every way possible. Henry Wallace's vice president, counted that. He made a famous speech in which he said the 20th century must be the century of the common man, and he called for a worldwide people's revolution in the tradition of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Latin American Revolutions, and the Russian Revolution. And he said that we have to end imperialism, end colonialism, end economic exploitation, spread the fruits of science and industry and technology around the entire world, feed the world, change the whole relationship. So Wallace had that kind of vision as vice president. He also made a speech in which he denounced America's fascists. He said America's fascists are those business interests who think that, that uh, Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. Now we refer to them as Democrats and Republicans in the United States, but to Wallace, those were America's fascists. So he had his enemies. Uh, he, among the, among the, his enemies were the leaders of Britain and France, because uh, Wallace was the most outspoken foe of empire. Anywhere in the United States at the at the time, and wrote books decrying empire. He had other uh, the Wall Street interests hated Wallace. The Southern segregationists hated Wallace because he was a leading spokesperson for black civil rights. The sexist hated Wallace. He was a leading spokesperson for women's rights, and so he had the progressives in his corner, but a lot of enemies who wanted to get him off the ticket in 1944 when Roosevelt ran again. The problem was. That Wallace was the second most popular man in America behind Roosevelt at the time. And the Democratic Party convention begins July 20th, 1944. It's a steamy night in Chicago, uh, at the stadium in Chicago. And Gallup releases a poll of potential voters asking who they wanted on the ticket as vice president. 65% said they wanted Wallace as vice president, 2% said they wanted Harry Truman. So the question is, how, for a supposed to democracy, is Truman going to get the nomination, who's unknown and disrespected, instead of Wallace, who was wildly popular and a visionary? But the party bosses controlled the convention. They made all these corrupt deals. Roosevelt at that point was old, near death, very weak, and was not able to resist them like he had before. And so when the convention began, it was clear that the majority of the delegates, despite the bosses, were overwhelmingly in support of Wallace. And the first ballot, Wallace almost won. But what happens that first night, Wallace makes a seconding speech for Roosevelt. The place goes wild in a spontaneous demonstration. It goes on for 45 minutes. In the midst of that, the senator from Florida... Claude Pepper realizes if he can fight his way to the microphone, get Wallace's name and nomination that night, then Wallace will sweep the convention, defy the bosses, be back on the ticket as vice president. And Pepper fights his way through the crowd. He gets within five feet of the microphone. The party bosses, led by Mayor Kelly of Chicago, are screaming for the chair to to. Uh, End the the session, he says, uh, we have to adjourn immediately, it's a fire hazard, we've got to adjourn, and Sam Jackson, who was chairing, didn't know what to do, Uh, he later admitted he had orders from the party bosses not to let Wallace's name be put in nomination, he says, I have a motion to adjourn, all in favor say aye, maybe 5% say aye, all opposed say no, everybody booms out no, and Jackson says, motion carried, meeting adjourned, and it ended with, with pepper five feet from the microphone. Well, Oliver and I argue: Is had Pepper gotten to that microphone and got Wallace's name and nomination? Wallace would have been back on the ticket as vice president. Would have become president on April 12, nineteen forty-five, when Roosevelt died, instead of Truman, and there would have been no atomic bombings in nineteen forty-five, and very likely no Cold War. That's how close um, we came.
0: Yeah, that's, yeah.
3: Uh, and, he's that's un- really and Wallace uh, is unknown in the United States. Uh, you, know, you ask. Yeah. I ask my students. I ask other audiences. Who was vice president of the United States between 41 and 45? If they say anything, they say Truman. They've mostly never heard of Wallace. He's largely been written out of the history books, although he was an absolutely extraordinary individual who stays on in the cabinet as secretary of commerce and spends the next year, more than a year, fighting uh, Truman from inside the cabinet, trying to change the direction of American policy to avoid the Cold War during that first period. It's, it's September of 1946 that he finally gets ousted from the cabinet.
1: So, Peter, how did the guy like that get written out of American history?
3: Uh, we've seen that with a lot of very, very influential figures. It's sort of like uh, what we always the United States always made fun about uh, Soviet history mm. during the Cold War. About defining a Soviet, a Soviet, uh, the definition of a Soviet historian is somebody who can predict the past. And, <laughs> and, and, and but we see that, you know, I find that in in country after country. Just back from Japan, Oliver and I wrote a piece uh, last year called "United States and Japan: Partners in Historical Falsification." I see this when I do interviews in China. Our book is out recently in China. I've done dozens of interviews with. Uh, China's 1 billion viewer television network and People's Daily the biggest newspaper and other sites Uh, and as soon as they're very happy to hear my criticisms of the United States and especially my criticisms of Japan but when I start criticizing China they make it very clear to me that they have to cut that out and I've had the same response in country after country so what we see over the world is that uh, the ruling classes understand the importance of controlling information, controlling media, and they understand the importance of controlling history. The notion that he who controls the past will control the the present and control the future is really... I mean, they they get it. Uh, I mean, the ruling forces in country after country fight for a certain interpretation of history in the history textbooks. And Oliver and I are fighting against that. We want every country to challenge the official truths, the myths, the lies that allow people to uh, completely misunderstand their country's history and other countries' history. So the same thing that we've done in the United States, we try to do everywhere we go. We think it's essential that all countries honestly confront their his- history because people's understanding of the past really does guide their behavior in the present and the future.
1: Hmm. There's another uh, aspect that you just touched on already about uh, if Wallace had become the president, there would have been no uh, nuclear bomb dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yes. Um, but there's a, that's another aspect of American history that very few Americans at least are aware of. And I think the kind of central point is, is that uh, that bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima was um, – kind of gratuitous in a certain sense. Uh, It wasn't necessary.
3: It was worse than that. Um, It's a long story. My students sit through a 12-hour lecture on the decision to drop the bomb. Uh, Uh But uh, American leaders understood that that the Japanese were militarily defeated. In fact, by the Battle of Saipan in July of 1944, the Japanese began to realize that the victory was hopeless, uh, that defeat was inevitable. Uh, the Japanese knew that. They maintained a strategy of waiting for one more big victory and then suing for peace in hopes that they could get better surrender terms. They never won another victory in World War II. Uh, then they adopted what was called the Ketsugo strategy, and that was based on the idea of waiting for a U.S. invasion and inflicting very heavy casualties on the United States, again, to get better surrender terms. Surrender terms are very important to them because their fear was the United States was calling for unconditional surrender, which meant that the emperor would be tried as a war criminal and executed. MacArthur's Southwest Command issued a report in the summer of '45 that said uh, Hanging the emperor to them would be like the crucifixion of Christ to us. All would fight to die like ants. And, and uh, we knew that. We knew that it would be almost impossible to get them to surrender unconditionally. And American, uh, the American experts kept telling Truman, let them keep the emperor. Let them know that they'll be allowed to keep the emperor if they choose to do so. Without that, there'd be almost no chance of getting a surrender. Despite that, the United States was militarily crushing Japan by the spring of 1945. We'd firebomb Japanese cities. Our blockades had cut off oil supplies. Uh, their, their, energy was, their energy was dwindling. The transportation system was collapsing. Food supplies were in short. So food, food was in short supply. There was hunger and starvation. The Americans knew that the Japanese were, were near defeat, and we knew it in part because we had broken their codes at the start of the war. We were intercepting their cables, and the cables going back and forth from Tokyo to Moscow. Uh, well, that, let me explain. That's because the Japanese in the spring of forty-five, decided on a strategy based on getting the Soviets to intervene on Japan's behalf to get them better surrender terms in return for giving concessions to the Soviet Union. They didn't know that the Soviets had already cut a deal with Roosevelt at Yalta that the Soviet Union was going to come into the Pacific War three months after the end of the war in Europe. But the Americans are, uh, are, are intercepting the cables. Truman himself refers to the intercepted July 18th telegram as, quote, the telegram from the Jap emperor asking for peace. All the, top, all the top U.S. policymakers were saying that that, that, uh, that the Japanese realized that defeat is inevitable, that they're suing for peace. So under those circumstances, and the other thing that they knew was that what would crush the Japanese once and for all was the Soviet invasion. The vast hmm. Red Army was scheduled to come into the war three months after the end of the war in Europe, which meant around August 8th or August 9th, and Stalin had told... Uh, Truman at Potsdam that the Soviets were going to do so. Truman's reaction to that is very revealing. Truman writes in his diary, uh, Stalin will be in the Jap war by August 15th. Finney Japs when that occurs. <clears throat> he writes, "Finny Japs when that occurs. He writes home to his wife the next day after getting the assurance from Stalin, and, she, and he says, the war will end the year sooner now. Think of all the boys who won't be killed. So the <clears throat> Americans knew, American intelligence says this over and over again. Entry of the Soviets will convince the Japs that it's no longer, that, that even may, resisting any longer is futile. The war will be over. So why does the United States drop the atomic bombs on August 6th and August 9? knowing that the Soviet invasion was about to begin. I mean, that's in some ways the mystery, but in some ways it's the obscenity also. And uh, the United States uh, was trying to send a message to the Soviet Union. The Cold mm -hmm. War, in many ways, had already begun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Leslie Groves, who was in charge of the Manhattan Project, Said to me right from two two weeks into this project, I knew that Russia was our enemy, and I designed the bomb project along those lines. <laughs> We've got other top leaders saying the same thing. Jimmy Burns, who becomes Secretary of State, uh, says that the the real concern is Soviet Union and Soviet gains in east in Eastern Europe. So the American leaders thought they could they could. They hoped to end the war before the Soviets got in and got the concessions the American promised them. At the same time, they wanted to send the message to Stalin. And the Soviet leaders reacted exactly as we could have predicted. They believed that the bomb was not dropped on Japan, who they knew was desperate to surrender. They believed that the bomb was dropped on them, and that's one of the crucial early developments in the Cold War. A couple other factors along those lines. Six of America's seven five-star admirals and generals who got their fifth star during the war were on record as saying the bomb was either militarily unnecessary or morally reprehensible. Many American leaders, including Truman's personal chief of staff, Admiral William Leahy, uh, was appalled by the atomic bombing, as was General Eisenhower. uh, and, And they thought from a moral standpoint, this is unconscionable, that the United States would do this against a people who are already defeated and trying to surrender, a weapon that would kill almost exclusively women and children, and that's what happened. And the other thing about it was that Truman recognized and said on at least three occasions that he realized that he was beginning a process that could end all life on the planet, and that to me is in some ways the real uh, enigma here. Truman is not a Hitler he's not an evil person he's not bloodthirsty why does he go mean, the question is how do decent human beings although limited but decent human beings commit horrendous actions and we see this time and again in history and i think this is one of those examples truman was a little man wallace was a big man truman had very little vision wallace had enormous vision truman had little or no empathy wallace had enormous empathy and Truman goes ahead and does this and does put the United States and the world on a glide path to destruction, and we're still on that. We haven't gotten past that. The human species, as concerned as we are about global warming, uh, the thing that still threatens the human species is nuclear war and nuclear winter.
1: Well, I mean, is there an an element of... um, A lot of people uh, I've talked to... uh, I think that the dropping of the bombs on, on Japan had something to do with simply wanting to test out this new toy, quote-unquote, well, we, we, a, in a real-life situation.
3: Well, we tested it out in, in Alamogordo, in the desert there, on July 16th, the Trinity test. You right. have to remember, we had two different types of bombs. One was the uranium bomb, which used a shotgun mm. method, shooting one mass into another. They had no doubt that that was going to work. The one that they tested in Alamogordo was the plutonium bomb, which was uh, triggered by an implosive charge, and that was a different kind of thing that they wanted to test. They weren't 100% certain on that one. Uh, They knew from that the results of that. It was about 18.6 kilotons of destructive capability. It was absolutely staggering. The um, people who saw it wrote back that they had experienced doomsday. The scientists, many of the scientists, feared that they had triggered an explosion of all the nitrogen in the atmosphere, and that uh, they had set the, the world's uh, space on, on, on fire. They thought that they they had burned up the entire world. It was so mm-hmm. bright, so powerful, so hot that they were just stunned by by the effects of it. Uh, so we, we didn't need to. We, we, that was enough of an experiment to, to convince everybody that this would work, and it was mm. as nightmarish as they anticipated it was. But they wanted to test it. They wanted to show, and in fact, they had issued orders that the United States Air Force was uh, was not allowed to bomb certain cities like in Japan because they wanted those cities to remain pristine so they could show the effects of the bomb, and they chose targets that would maximize. The effects of the bomb, uh, and uh, that's what happened. They, they chose Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The original target that Leslie Groves wanted was Kyoto, but uh, Secretary of War Stimson vetoed that on the grounds that this was Japan's ancient capital, their intellectual and cultural uh, the heart capital of Japan, and that the the uh, Japanese would never reconcile with the United States if we had destroyed Kyoto. So we destroyed hiroshima and nagasaki instead
1: it's almost indescribable they, they, callousness and yeah. cruelty to for whoever yeah, they, made that decision you know? they had left those two
2: cities for this purpose i mean that's yeah, it yeah they,
3: they really left four cities they also had uh uh niigata on the list and Kokura, um and that you know they were they were, they were ready to wipe them out and from the standpoint of the japanese leaders it's what people sometimes confuse, they think that the bombs ended the war. If you look at the deliberations in the Japanese cabinet, there's no truth to that at all. The United States had already firebombed over 100 Japanese cities. The destruction reached 99.5% of the city of Toyama, 99.5%. So, the, uh, so from the standpoint of the Japanese leaders, they accepted the fact that the Americans could wipe out Japanese cities. It, to them, it didn't make a big difference if it was 2,000 planes and tens of thousands of bombs or if it was one plane and one bomb. It was the same mm-hmm. effect from their standpoint. What changed the equation was the Soviet invasion because that mm-hmm. proved bankrupt both their diplomatic strategy of trying to get the Soviets to intervene and their military strategy of trying to of waiting for an American invasion. The, the uh, Red Army blitzed through the Kwantung Army in Manchuria almost overnight. And the Soviet uh, Suzuki, the prime minister, was asked why the Japanese had to surrender so quickly. He said the Soviets have taken Manchuria, they're going to take the Kuril Islands, South Sakhalin, Uh, tomorrow they're going to be in Hokkaido, the structure of Japan is going to be destroyed, we must surrender now, we can surrender to the Americans. If you look at the the deliberations among Japanese leaders, one of their big concerns was what happened in Eastern Europe. When the Red Army marched through there, and they were greeted as liberators, they thought that there was the danger of a communist revolution in Japan also, if the Soviets invaded the Japanese home islands.
1: Mm -hmm. So... It wasn't as um, many several generals at the time, as you said, uh, said that uh, the dropping of the, the bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima was not uh, militarily necessary, but it, clearly it was uh, kind of, what would you call it, geo-strategically or geopolitically necessary?
3: I, I don't say necessary. I think it was awful. But from the point the Cold War was, was awful. awful. From the standpoint yeah, from, of people who wanted American hegemony, they saw yeah. that as crucial. Yeah. So that is crucial,
0: and, and that's the way Stalin it. interpreted. it.
3: Hmm. Stalin said this bomb was dropped on us, not the Japanese, and he, he yeah. ordered his scientists to speed up even further the, the Soviet's own bomb project. It was effectively and as like a like the side warned.
1: Hmm? Uh, it was effectively as a warning to Russia that had kind of invaded kind of Manchuria or China, and um, I think it was more
3: east Europe. They were. They were concerned about Soviet domination of Europe.
1: So they were simply showing that they were willing to use, the, n- use nuclear bombs.
3: There's no limit to, to America's ruthlessness, what it was willing to do at that point. And that, that was how the Soviets interpreted it. And the scientists yeah. warned about that. The scientists at Met Lab in Chicago, which had d- finished its mission a little earlier than those at Los Alamos, issued a series of reports. And the Frank Committee report in June said that uh, it, the United States should not use these bombs, even if we have them, because not only will it compromise America's moral position in the world, but it will trigger an uncontrollable arms race that's going to spell doom for everybody. The scientists had, wrote petitions. They, they spoke out about this. They tried to influence it to change, but they weren't able to.
4: Well, it's all very kind of Clausewitzian in a certain sense. This kind of total Um, war—if we're not willing to do whatever it takes, they're going to do it. That kind of very psychopathic mentality of of extremism, of going to the ultimate links to prove that you're the biggest and the baddest.
3: Yes, and And and, and and that's what—that's what Wallace was so staunchly opposed to. Wallace believed mm -hmm. the U.S. and the Soviets could get along just fine after the war. We've been wartime allies, and and that's the other part of the you know one. Is, I like to argue, I don't like to argue, but I have to argue that the America's views of World War II were based on three fundamental myths. One is that the atomic bomb ended the war in Asia. The second fundamental myth was that the United States won the war in Europe. Which the reality was that the Americans and the Brits. Throughout most of the war, faced ten Nazi divisions combined. The Soviets were facing 200 throughout that time. The Americans had promised to open up the second front in Europe at a meeting in Washington with Molotov in late May 1942. The Americans promised to open up the second front before the end of World War before the end of 1942. Uh, as we know, the second front doesn't open until June 6, 1944. It was Churchill who, denied the, who convinced Roosevelt to cancel the early launching of the Second Front. Uh, Churchill had his own strategy, a strategy largely based on maintaining the British Empire. The last thing he wanted to do was confront Germany on, on the land. As a result, the Soviets were forced to fight this almost single-handedly. Uh, that's part of why Russia lost 27 million people in World War II. The United yeah. States lost 305,000 in combat and 400,000 overall, um, and that was because, as Churchill later admits, he said the the Soviets tore the guts out of the German war machine. Not not the British, not the Americans. They did some peripheral fighting, uh, later some more direct fighting, and they contributed. The United States contributed in other ways militarily to the Soviet effort. But uh, it was the Soviets who did most of the fighting, most of the dying, <coughs> most of the suffering and devastation. Uh, but but at the end of the war, Stalin hoped fervently that the U.S. and the Soviet alliance would be maintained, partly because he was pro- had been promised or had been offered that the United States raised the figure of twenty billion dollars in reparations in order to rebuild half of that would go to the soviet union to rebuild its economy as president kennedy says in his famous american university commencement address in nineteen sixty three he said what the Soviets suffered was the equivalent of the entire united states east of chicago being destroyed uh... it was mind-boggling what they what they suffered they weren't looking for war they were not looking for uh, to, to dominate the world at the end of World War II. Their goal was to rebuild. They wanted peace. They wanted cooperation. That doesn't mean we would have liked everything they had done in Eastern Europe, the Soviets, but, but you have to remember that in the early first two years after the war, what Stalin was after was friendly governments. He was not looking for lockstep dictatorial regimes. That doesn't, he doesn't really begin imposing those until 1947, 1948. Uh, when he realized that friendship with the West was no longer a possibility. So I think that of,
2: he gave it. He yeah. gave it a good shot. I mean, this is Stalin we're talking about. He's supposed to be up there with Hitler in terms of the League of Evil Gentlemen. And yet he was, well, he was
4: out-Stalinized. He was too naive in the face of Western well, yeah, strategies. I, I wonder if a lot of the problems that Stalin was facing were... Not entirely his caused by him. I mean, and also how much of this, uh, the way the Soviets acted post nineteen forty seven, or as um, as we've been talking about, uh, was due to the American manipulation, to the American you know global political position, which kind of forced his hand. And here he is in a situation where he's got a completely destroyed economy, a massive depopulation from the war. I mean. What is he going to do? He didn't have the food to feed all those people that starved. Was it really his fault in the end?
3: Um, You know, it's partly his fault and and partly not. I I, I, I place the major responsibility for the start of the Cold War on the United States. Had Roosevelt lived longer, had Wallace been in there instead of Truman, I think it would have been avoided. Uh, Roosevelt... If you look at his statements, even his last cable he sent to Churchill, he said, these small problems between us and the Soviets arise every day, but they always get resolved. The thing we shouldn't do is make a big deal about this. Uh, Roosevelt was still confident that the U.S. and and the Soviets were going to maintain post-war friendship. Roosevelt had a vision of three or four policemen who was going to rule the world and together was going to dominate and maintain peace and security, and the Soviet Union was part of that in Roosevelt's mind, um, Wallace even more so in terms of reaching out to the Soviets and, and looking for post-war uh, co- accommodation between the, the, the two societies. But Truman, from the very beginning, has a, ver- has a different idea. Truman, t- his first day in office is April 13th. Within 10 days, he has flipped American policy, from looking at the Soviets as friends and allies to looking at the Soviets as combatants and antagonists and competitors and and, uh, evildoers. It's April 23rd that Molotov visits Washington. Truman dresses him down. Uh, Truman says to to him... uh, basically, that, that the Soviets have broken all of their agreements, especially in Poland. They defied Yalta. They can't be trusted. Molotov says, I've never been talked to that way in my life. And Truman says, carry out your agreements. You won't have to be talked to that way. Truman had little understanding at all. He, when he takes office, you have to realize that, that this was a guy who had been vice president for 82 days, during which time Roosevelt spoke to him twice. Uh, and didn't speak to him of anything of substance. Truman had no idea of what America's policies were, had no idea what had happened at Yalta. And when he takes over, the first day, Jimmy Burns comes in to see him. They fly Burns up from South Carolina in Forrestal's private private plane. Uh, and Burns had been Truman's mentor in the Senate. Uh, Burns had also accompanied Roosevelt to Yalta, so Truman believed that Burns knew what was going on. He only later finds out that Burns had, was not in on the important meetings, had left early, and had been feeding Truman misinformation, uh, but Truman relies on Burns, and he says to him, "Tell me everything that happened at all of these conferences and what's going on." And Burns begins to paint this hardline picture of Soviet perfidy and Soviet uh, aggression. Truman, the people who Truman trusted for foreign policy advice were ones who had no influence with, with Roosevelt, uh. and. They paint this picture of, of, of the Soviet Union breaking the agreements and can not being trustworthy. Mm-hmm. That was within 10 days, It's almost overnight. The other thing about Truman is that he doesn't believe he's qualified for the job. He, uh, he, he says to everybody the first couple of weeks he's in office, he says this is a terrible mistake. He says, "I'm not big enough. I'm not smart enough. Somebody else should take over. Who knows what's going on in the world?" And they finally told him, "He's got to at least act presidential, make believe like he's confident, or everybody in Washington and around the country is going to lose confidence and, and, and get total. It's going to be chaos." And so Truman tries to step up, but he knows he's in way over his head, and he makes all the wrong calls. Again, uh, you know, when Eden. Uh, Eden comes to see him, and Eden's immediate assessment is that Truman has surrounded himself. Truman is a mediocrity who has surrounded himself with Missouri courthouse caliber advisors. These are are small-town yokels who know nothing about the world and Mm -hmm. knows the physication. Truman is in that position as well. And Truman is faced with all these horrible you know, big consequential decisions. He was but so Peter, lightly regarded that that, as vice president for almost three months, nobody even told him that the United States was building an atomic bomb. He doesn't find that out until that night when he's sworn in as president. I mean, this is a person who nobody took seriously as a thinker, as a politician.
1: So, Peter, that kind of suggests that, um, I mean, you say that Truman made all of these kind of missteps and wrong decisions and stuff, but was it really Truman making those decisions? Was he not being passed kind of policy by someone else?
3: He was being advised. He trusted all the wrong people. If you look at that first day in office, he first meets with Stettinius, who Roosevelt and everybody else considered to be a a complete lightweight. Then he meets with...
2: steel magnate.
3: Yeah. And and Burns... um, uh, Burns briefs him on the atomic bomb and he, he says to Burns at that first meeting, I really want you to be my main advisor and my Secretary of State and as soon as Stettinius concludes the negotiations around the United Nations, I'm going to replace him and make you Secretary of State. And Burns becomes his main advisor from behind the scenes. So you can say that Truman is a little man in way over his head who turns to others for advice and because of his own conservative instincts turns to all the wrong people. I think that that's, that that's <clears throat> a fair calculation. Uh, but you know, we're looking at a crucial turning point where if you had different advisors, different leaders, and the same situation, we could have had fundamentally different policies. The Cold War at mm-hmm. that period is just so avoidable for the, first, yeah. for the next year. And, and Wallace leads the fight from inside the cabinet. And his struggle during that time is, I think, heroic, because it goes against Wallace's own nature. Wallace is not that kind of political leader who's going to wage that kind of struggle, but he knew it was incumbent upon him. And even Eleanor Roosevelt, after her husband died, comes to Wallace and says, You're our only hope. You're the only hope of the progressive voices in the country and in the world. Uh, and and Wallace tried to assume play that role he's not in some ways he's not a gifted politician because he's not a Washington insider he's not somebody who schmoozes and drinks you know and and goes to meetings and clubs and and plays that game he was somebody he was an intellectual he was a a very very deep thinker a philosopher he would rather spend his evenings tossing the boomerang along the Potomac than going out drinking with the buddies And, and so he's uh, you know, he's not, he's, he's not the natural charismatic leader, but he tries to play that role.
1: But in terms of this switch around from, like, immediately, uh, apparently at the time of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was a policy, a switch in policy to be essentially, or the policy was decided at that point to be belligerent towards uh, the Soviets, to not kind of work it out together and kind of control the world together or... Oh, rule the world together, but to essentially take a belligerent stance towards the Soviets. So, I mean, who is benefiting from that?
3: Well, the, the old US. military-industrial complex is certainly benefiting. Um, we've got the war industries. There were certain people who said the United States has got to remain on a total war footing. That we've got. There was a big concern in the United States that when the war ended, the United States was going to fall back into depression. Uh, The Soviet economists argue that, and a lot of American economists and leaders were also fearful that if we didn't maintain those same levels of government spending, uh, then the American economy was going to collapse again. So on the one hand, we've got those interests, those military-industrial interests that want to maintain war spending and defense spending and build up that entire uh, post-war scientific-industrial-military establishment. Um, so that was one force. There were also a certain militarist force in the United States the right, and the conservatives. The conservatives did hate communism. The conservatives were afraid that there was going to be a push for a real left-wing redistribution of wealth in the United States uh, mm-hmm. in, in the post-war period. <coughs> uh, so and that, that's what Wallace envisioned. Wallace envisioned a much more equitable society and always spoke out in favor of that. That was, that was a strong element. The labor movement was strong in the post-war period. The progressive forces were strong. And had Wallace been in there instead of Truman, we would have seen a different kind of United States.
1: So the, the, the group of the interests that won the day that prevailed after, after World War II and set America on the course that it is still on today were the same forces that were kind of cracking down on, on unions and labor movements in the late 1800s.
3: And and again, in the post-war period, Uh, if you look at who the the top American advisors were during this time, they were mostly Wall Street bankers who were fabulously wealthy, had made fortunes during the interwar period. You look, for example, at uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. Mm -hmm. John Foster Dulles becomes Secretary of State in the 50s. Alan Dulles becomes head of the CIA. Uh, They are enormously powerful and influential, but where do they come out of? They were the ones who ran Sullivan and Cromwell. Sullivan and Cromwell was the dominant Wall Street banking firm. What you had on Wall Street in the 1930s was a a lot of people in Wall Street and in American industry who were very sympathetic to the Nazis. Uh, They saw the Nazis as a way to stop communism and socialism, uh... the american business maintained ties with german business up through the start of world war one during uh, world war two during the war a lot of those profits were put in uh, trusteeship and were held for the american companies that then kept those profits after world war two in fact american firms like gm and ford demanded and got reparations after the war for tens of millions of dollars in damages that were inflicted on their factories by U.S. bombing of those German Nazi plants, and they got the profits from that as well. These people were shameless. It was Henry Ford. Uh, Hitler had a portrait of Henry Ford in his office. and said that Henry Ford was his inspiration. Henry Ford was a, a leading anti-Semite. Uh, not, not all of them were anti-Semites, but they were sympathetic to the German cause. Uh, the heads of IBM and, and uh, Singer and all these, these uh, industrialists uh, were profiting enormously during the war. One of the main examples is uh, Prescott Bush, the father to George H.W. Yeah. Bush and the grandfather to George W. Bush. He was a Nazi collaborator. In fact, he was, uh, he was controlling the accounts. For the German industrialist Thyssen, later the government intervened and took took away those accounts from Bush under the Trading with the Enemy Act. I mean, so th- this kind of collaboration uh, was not, was common, and many of these people are the ones who are going to shape U.S. policy after the war, in conjunction with certain intelligence interests. There were yeah. uh, German intelligence operations that were run by former Nazis that were feeding information to the CIA. The Galen organization is the most prominent. But this kind of stuff was going on all over Europe during during this period.
0: What
1: what begins to boggle your mind a little bit, though, is, as you just said, kind of Wall Street were involved in, you know, they were sympathetic to the Nazis and involved in kind of financially helping them out to a certain extent, uh, in the hope, supposedly, that they would... uh, deal with communism because communism yes. being a threat to to the financial elite but at the same time jump back, uh, you know, 10 or 15 20 years and you have some wall street interests actually financing the Bolshevik revolution.
3: I don't think that's true. I think mean, that's part of the myth. Oh yeah? Yes, I mean that was what that that was uh, what a lot of people tried to argue. Uh what what you had was Sir, uh Lenin was adopting fordist techniques uh L- Lenin was very very impressed with the American industrial technology and approaches and so he also he actually did have some ford advisors and industrial advisors in there from the United States the um the Ameri- one of the interesting things that I discovered during my first book when I was writing about scientists and technology in the 1930s was uh, when rumors started to spread in the early 1930s that the Soviet Union was going to be importing industrial workers from the United States to help deal deal with Soviet uh, labor shortages. Thousands and thousands of Americans signed up to, to come to the Soviet Union. They wanted to go to the Soviet Union to work. The image in the United States was that the Soviet economy was thriving at a time when the Western economies had collapsed. Some of that was inflated, but if you look at whether it was Christian Science Monitor or Barons or American business, other business publications, you see a lot of that. They're in the early 1930s at a time when the U.S. economy was reaching its nadir.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, the reason I um, I mentioned that about uh, Wall Street and the Bolsheviks is because I've read, um, uh, I don't know if you know, know him, Anthony Sutton. Uh, yeah, that's that's public, that's but, Sutton
3: is a very, very dubious uh, character. Some uh, right. you of know, my grad students have, um, who are writing on related subjects, have looked very closely into that for me uh, because mm-hmm. I was, because I, I know that a lot of people quote Sutton and uh, I wanted to find out if there's anything credible about, about his, his work. One of my PhD students right now is writing a dissertation about U.S. ties to German industry and uh mm-hmm. we we did a lot of study of Sutton and it's, it's not a very credible source okay
2: yeah but but, but, I, but I was work. guessing
3: that that might be the, might be where you had gotten that from
2: yeah um when you put together the Wall street connections with the financing of Hitler and World War two with the it kind of help but think of it as a kind of a delaying strategy whereby the US and Britain avoid getting into the war until the Soviets are already have already defeated, essentially defeated the Hitler war machine in Stalingrad. You're kind of left wondering, is this some kind of, some kind of strategy on somebody's part to come in yeah, at it, the it, end? It, it.
3: But you have to be careful about that because certainly there were a lot of people in Britain, I think, who were consciously supporting that view, but the United States less so uh, because you you have a fairly progressive New Deal administration under Roosevelt, and the American military leaders uh, were furious when the United States postponed the Second Front. They were furious with Roosevelt. Eisenhower, who was tapped to lead the invasion of Northern Africa, said that the day the United States uh, uh, decided to go into Africa instead of fight, confront the Germans, he said this would go down as the blackest day in American history. Uh, it was Marshall who was uh, even more incensed. Marshall said they called it periphery pecking, uh, and he was so angry that he at one point proposed shifting the American strategy. American strategy was to, to defeat the Germans first and then go after the Japanese. Marshall said that if if, if Churchill is such a coward and, and refuses to actually confront the Nazis, then we should maybe go after Japan first and let let the Brits suffer. And that that was uh, you know so they were they were American military leaders were furious with this this strategy, and Roosevelt only went along with it out of desperation because he wanted to get the U.S. troops involved somewhere in 1940. Uh, three, uh, But uh, the United States, I, I don't think it was a conscious policy on the part of American policymakers, because I think the industrialists, who were su- mostly closely tied to the Nazis, were not the ones who were calling the shots in the United States. There was a right-wing element that emerged in the 1930s that these people were tied to. It included the Morgan Banks, it included the DuPont interests, Remington, a lot of other industrialists and Wall Street people. But uh, they they had some influence, but they weren't necessarily the driving forces behind U.S. policy. Whereas if you deal with Britain, you have to realize that Churchill supported the fascists in the Spanish Civil War, mm-hmm. that, the, that there was a stronger element in Britain that I think was more conscious about a strategy of letting the Germans move eastward to destroy the Soviet Union. I think that that was a more conscious strategy among some of the British Tories.
4: Well, there was a, a rather anti Semitic article written by Churchill at one point long before the uh, the Second World War. And which he, it was anti Semitic, um,
3: it was racist. Ugly, ugly yeah. stuff when it came to race.
4: <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of those elite British uh the elite British politicians and lords and stuff were, were actually particularly racist, I think, and they were
0: well,
1: they part were, of
4: that. Uh, let's go. Let's go. Is dominate the blackies. And, well,
1: of course, yeah. They, they, they were the, the, the ideological descendants of of the British empire builders who had, uh, you know, basically.
4: But on the topic of of, of America choosing um, to open a front in Africa, um, it was kind of a soft target in a certain sense. Yes. It was the softest target that they could go for uh, at mm-hmm. the time. So it was very conservative. Uh, a way to attack the Germans because of course and they did kind of really bowl over the the German forces in, in, in North Africa anyway. So I mean that's probably why they picked it. It was the easiest way to get in.
3: Yes. It was the easiest way to get in, but it was also important for maintaining the British Empire.
4: But yeah, if you
3: look at the British strategy, it was and there were many times when the Brits had more troops posted even during the Battle of Britain They maintained their troops throughout the empire in order to make sure that they could retain the empire. Part of the German strategy was going to be to go for India at some point, and the Mm -hmm. Brits were very, very concerned about that. So Churchill Mm -hmm. kept saying, "I'm I'm not chosen as prime minister in order to preside over the destruction of the British Empire. If you look at Roosevelt's comments, and criticisms. Uh, there's a wonderful book written by Roosevelt's son, who accompanied Roosevelt to a lot of the meetings with Churchill. And Roosevelt's commenting quite regularly about how loathsome he finds the British Empire and how this and the French Empire and how this cannot be made, allowed to persist after the war.
4: Well, they, they were very loathsome.
1: Yeah, um, Peter. Just as a uh, related note. I've heard, you know, the suggestion that um, Roosevelt was. Assassinated in some way, and it uh, and it was apparently or allegedly told uh, to Roosevelt's son by Stalin that it was the, that Churchill was behind it. Do you have any?
3: You know, I I, on that? I, I, my, my inclination is to always doubt those kinds of conspiracies. Uh, uh-huh.
1: Not that not that they wouldn't have Churchill wouldn't have been up for such a task, but you know whether or not it was practicable.
3: You know Roosevelt had been sick for quite a while, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and had had his bout with polio much much earlier, and had never been very strong after that. There was a very precipitous decline in his health. During the war, but he, um, his doctors were monitoring it carefully. His heart was not not good, uh, so
1: yeah, you yeah. think it was natural causes? So okay. Uh,
3: so I, I mean, I I I, I doubt that. Uh, I'm, I, I'm skeptical that 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 kind of thing could have happened or mm. or, or would have happened. It's, it's one of the interesting responses to Roosevelt's death was by Stalin because uh, Avril Harriman, who was U.S. ambassador to Moscow at that point, went to see Stalin uh, to give him the news shortly after Roosevelt died, and Harriman, who's pretty anti-Soviet, said that uh, he was stunned by how overcome with grief Stalin was. Stalin was in tears and kept holding uh, Harriman's hands and and Harriman said it was so sincere and so profound, Stalin's sense of loss over Roosevelt's death. To the Soviet people, Roosevelt really was a hero. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, But even American leaders like Eisenhower visited the Soviet Union right after the war. And Eisenhower was the first uh, non-Russian to be allowed to stand on Lenin's tomb to watch a parade in Red Square. Eisenhower also thought that there was a great potential friendship after the war. Uh, but he said the first thing that made him doubt it was the atomic bomb. He was in Moscow when the bomb was dropped. He said then for the first time he began to have doubts because he knew what that meant in terms of U.S.-Soviet relations.
0: Yeah,
1: you, uh, yeah, you mentioned the potential, you know, for... I mean, you mentioned that in other places as well, uh, all of these moments in history where there's potential for things to go in a... Uh, different more positive direction and uh, but Uh, invariably they don't they go in a direction that and i mean that has to raise the question of why i mean uh, surely the will of most of the people would be for things to go in a positive direction you have these you know leaders now and again who have the potential to take the world in that direction but there seems to be this kind of uh, force and very often kind of behind the scenes that push it in a, in a direction that is beneficial to uh, almost right. no one.
3: And that gets into this whole debate about structural forces versus personalities and individuals, which Oliver and I engage all the time, whether or not things could have been different, whether it was the deep structures of capitalism that made the Cold War inevitable and and uh, made, made the post-war period the way way it is, or whether individuals actually could have change things. We have a lot of turning points where I think things could have been quite different. One was on March 5, 1953, when Stalin died. At that mm-hmm. point, the Soviet leaders held out an olive branch. They were ready to end the Cold War at that point. Uh, they reached out to the United States, and Eisenhower finally says something after weeks, and he makes a wonderful speech about the waste in terms of human wealth and resources of all this military spending. But then the next day, Dulles makes a speech that says just the opposite and blames the Soviets for everything that's going on around the world. Uh, And and, uh, the United States was conflicted, and Dulles ended up speaking for the United States more than Eisenhower at that point. So that was one lost opportunity when the Soviets were reaching out. So, and, But we have many of them. Uh, one of the most troubling ones is in 1963, after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Clearly, Kennedy and Stalin, I mean, Kennedy and Khrushchev had both woken up at that point. They were both making tremendous strides toward ending the Cold War, uh, ending the arms race. They had just signed the Arms Control Treaty to stop nuclear testing in space, They had both called for joint collaboration in in exploration of space rather than a space race. Uh, Kennedy was telling people, especially privately, that he wanted to pull the United States out of Vietnam as soon as he's reelected and begins issuing documents to that effect. There was a a lot of opportunity on, on numerous fronts at that point. Uh, uh, Khrushchev reached out Khrushchev wanted to stop defense spending so he could increase the standard of living of the Russian people and that kind of thing would have been tremendous for everybody in everybody's interests. but it got sabotaged of course Kennedy gets assassinated and Khrushchev gets ousted from power Uh, both countries had their hardliners and both countries had had, uh, forces that wanted to eliminate those leaders and wanted, were more comfortable with a policy of confrontation and war than they were of a policy of, of peaceful collaboration, coexistence.
2: Peter, do you see eye-to-eye eye with Oliver regarding JFK's assassination?
3: We didn't go there with untold history. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oliver had already staked out a position there. Oliver yeah. was always already very identified with uh, possible theories of, of other people who were involved in the Kennedy assassination so we didn't really we decided not to not to go with 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 that question Um, I'm not quite as certain as Oliver about all of this but I I find uh, I don't find the Warren Commission and the official report at all persuasive I don't Mm -hmm. find the magic bullet theory persuasive the lone assassin persuasive Uh, The more I've studied this, and Oliver and I have been speaking about this around the country, uh, the more convinced I am that the idea that there was a conspiracy is more plausible than the idea that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. But I don't rule out the possibility as certainly as Oliver does. Oliver has studied this in much greater depth than I have, and Mm -hmm. Oliver uh, has is is absolutely convinced that other forces were at play. There's a lot of information, a lot of things that should make everybody very skeptical of any official report on this. The CIA is still withholding files on very, very important people. Uh, Not not that I think this is going to be written down somewhere, but the fact that they are withholding information still is uh, certainly damning. And there were other people uh, who, you know... I don't think that Lyndon Johnson was involved, but there's a lot of very questionable things about somebody like Johnson, who very likely was the scandals were about to break surrounding Johnson the week that Kennedy was assassinated, uh, including the Bobby Baker scandal. There's a strong evidence, a strong, strong basis for concluding that Johnson would have been off the ticket was about to be ousted would very likely have been indicted and the scandals that surrounded him and all of that disappeared Mm -hmm. as soon as Kennedy was assassinated Um, there's just uh, so much there's so much murky stuff surrounding Mm -hmm. it that um, one needs to at least question it uh, as as Oliver has done and and, uh, Kennedy himself knew that an uh, ouster a coup was possible He thought that a coup was possible during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, uh, Robert Kennedy had warned Khrushchev that the generals could overthrow his brother during the Cuban Missile Crisis. When when John Kennedy read the novel Seven Days in May about a liberal president being overthrown in a military coup, Kennedy said to a friend, he said, you know, it's possible. He said if there's a first bay of pigs, they'd think maybe he was in over his head. If there was a second bay of pigs, the military would start to wonder if this guy can be trusted. If there was a third bay of pigs, uh, they, would, they would likely act. And uh, Oliver and I that there were at least seven or eight bays of pigs, uh, or equivalent mm-hmm. crises in which Kennedy defied the military and the intelligence establishment. And there were many people in the top ranks of the military and the intelligence establishment who hated Kennedy. And it's interesting that one of the people, seven members of the Warren Commission, who investigated the Kennedy assassination was Alan Dulles, who, who Kennedy ousted as head of the CIA. And, mm-hmm. and even four of the seven members of the Warren Commission said that they, didn't, they, they had serious doubts about the magic bullet theory, that Oswald acted alone and that was possible. So uh, there's, there's, there's great reason to be very, very questioning of these findings.
1: Peter, I know this question isn't uh, strictly related to, you know, you're a historian and the book you've written and the documentary you've made with Oliver is um, about our history over the past, you know, 100 or so years. But uh, kind of history seems to be in the making. Uh, Obviously, history is being made uh, every day. uh, And right now, um, uh, there's the situation with, uh, as Neil was mentioned at the beginning of the show about the apparent new Cold War, but what is your take on, uh, if you have one, on um, what Russia is doing today in Ukraine and how that relates to, you know, the West and the EU and the yeah. US in there?
3: Uh, Oliver and I wrote a piece titled Through Russian Eyes uh, in which we address some of that. It's... um. Again, uh, a complex situation the, since the end of the Cold War. But we argue in that piece is that if you look at the world through the eyes of Russian leaders, it looks very different than it does through the eyes of Western leaders. Some of the key elements in that, <clears throat> when the Cold War ends, Yeltsin, Gorbachev, uh, is with Oliver and I have enormous respect for Gorbachev. We were thrilled that the first blurb we got for Untold History was from Gorbachev himself. Uh, but Yeltsin is a, a character, you know, is an animal of a very, very different character. And Yeltsin turns immediately to Western economists. They subject the Soviet, the Russian economy, to what they call shock therapy. The shock therapy had early been tried on a lesser scale in Poland. It devastated the Russian economy. The Russian economy was, was literally, literally decimated. The standard of living collapsed during that time. The economy shrunk to the size of Holland's. Uh, people were in desperation, enormous unemployment, gangster capitalism, new, new forces made billions o- overnight, and the po- people were impoverished. Uh, During that time, the Russian military declined sharply, military capabilities, economic capabilities. uh, so, So you've got that going on on the one hand. The second thing is the expansion of NATO. When Gorbachev allowed Germany to unify, he was promised that NATO would not move one foot to the east, Mm-hmm. And that was with his agreement with George H.W. Bush. However, under Clinton and George W. Bush and then Obama, NATO expands almost to Russia's doorstep. Uh, and in fact, under George W. Bush, they were talking about incorporating Ukraine and Georgia as well. This is anathema to, to, the, so, to the Russian leaders, military and political. You also have to realize that in 2006... There was an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, as close as we have to an official foreign policy magazine in the U.S., by uh, Lieber and Press, which says that the Soviets, I mean that the Americans have finally achieved a first strike nuclear capability against the Soviet, against Russia and China. They said if the United States launched a nuclear attack, neither Russia nor China would even be able to respond. Uh, so, so that sent shivers through through the Kremlin. Uh, As as the Washington Post said, uh, heads were spinning inside the Kremlin when that article came out. So the United States is is establishing military, economic, and technological hegemony and superiority and domination during this time. The uh, move into Ukraine has got to be seen as part of that. And sometimes the West was honest about that. One very important article in Financial Times says that the effort in Ukraine was the culmination of a years-long effort to wrest Ukraine away from the Russian bloc and to the Western bloc. Um, So from the standpoint of, of Putin and the Russian leaders, it becomes quite clear that this is an aggressive effort by the West to topple a recently elected administration in Ukraine uh, in, in a coup, and from the Russian standpoint, that coup uh, included many extreme right-wing, pro-fascist elements. Uh, ones who had, because the, the split in the Ukraine goes way back. There was a very strong pro-fascist element in Ukraine, and then there was a strong partisan element that was uh, pro-Russian and, and uh, anti-fascist in Ukraine. So I I see the situation as a complicated one in which the pro-Western forces in Kiev, many of them wanted more freedom and hated the corruption in the Ukrainian government, and that's understandable. There was also a strong pro-fascist element in operation there, and there were also those who were working in collaboration with the United States and, and Europe to try to wrest Ukraine away from the Russians. Putin's response was, there's no reason why Ukraine needs to choose between the two blocks. We can have a situation in which Ukraine is linked still to both. But the Western interests demanded that from a military and an economic standpoint, Ukraine embrace the West alone. Uh, and, and so tr- from that point on, Putin's responses, I think, are, are rather predictable.
1: Well, I think they're justified as well.
3: Well, I, you know, we, you don't want to see military interventions there, but they certainly—it's
0: certainly, um, it's it's certainly understandable
3: now. why why yeah. why the Russians would respond that way. And I think mm. that the West knew they were going to respond that way. In the mm. same sense, when I look at the uh, what happened in Afghanistan, when Brzezinski deliberately stirs up the pro-Islamist sentiment in Afghanistan. Uh, he knows that the Soviets are going to have to intervene to support the friendly government in Afghanistan in the late 70s and the early 80s. The United States deliberately stirred that up. Brzezinski later bragged, he said, my goal was to give the Soviet Union its own Vietnam in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets, of course, after resisting, they finally did send in the troops to Afghanistan which is what the West was trying to do. I think that this is probably a similar situation, that they knew that if they toppled the government in Kiev and replaced it with the the other forces there and started to threaten the uh, pro-Russian populations in in eastern Ukraine, that the Russians were going to have to respond the way they did. And they saw this as a way to further discredit the uh, discredit Putin and Russia. I Mm. I, I don't have any evidence to support that, but when I see the pattern of U.S. and Western behavior, I think that this is actually quite consistent with what's happened elsewhere.
1: Mm. I wonder if they they expected Putin to simply go for Crimea. Maybe they were like in the same sense they were trying to give uh, Russia another Afghanistan. They expected the Russians to kind of invade Ukraine itself. But Putin decided just to go for Crimea, which was a strategically important uh, mm-hmm. part of Ukraine, and then oh, 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 hold, the, hold the, the
3: other parts there are also very closely tied economically and politically yeah. and ethnically to Russia. I wouldn't, wouldn't have been surprised had they uh, intervened to support the pro the rebel forces in other parts mm-hmm. as well. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the U.S. response to me is, is in some ways, offensive. Uh, You know, Obama's foreign policy seems to be based on two things. One is drones, and the other is sanctions. This guy loves to sanction countries. You could say, Mm -hmm. okay, sanctions are better than uh, boots on the ground and and invasions and bombing, uh, although we've done a bit of bombing as well, uh, but these sanctions... You know What has Russia done that deserves such horrible sanctions compared to what the United States has done in recent years? Did we see the rest of the world sanctioning the United States for invading Iraq? How many Iraqis nope. were killed compared to how many people have been killed in Ukraine? Ukraine, a few thousand people have died as a result of, of this, and that's, that's tragic. But in in Iraq, the U.S. invasion has led to the deaths of somewhere between 150,000 and 1.5 million or maybe even more. We don't have Mm -hmm. records. We don't keep track. We don't know how many people have died. There's a big, big debate about that. But did we see the world sanctioning the United States for invading Iraq, for invading Afghanistan, for invading Libya? I mean, these, to me, are appalling developments. What's happened in Ukraine is, at most, a very unfortunate uh, development, but never, not even close to the scale of U.S.-caused atrocities around the world. But we don't see the world rising up in in moral indignation uh, to to, uh, sanction the United States and cut off trade with the United States. So, I mean, there's, there's, I think, tremendous (coughs) disproportion in terms of these kinds of responses.
1: Absolutely.
2: Do you wonder, Peter, if it's reached a point here where the U.S. hegemony might have overreached itself yes. and in desperately trying to secure Ukraine to the Western bloc, w- whether it's just for Ukrainian resources and or to stick one to Putin's Russia, that this might be the graveyard the graveyard.
3: The, British, of the US Empire is too far. Yeah. I, I don't see this as being the graveyard, but I see it as part of the process of overreaching, overextension. You have to realize that the United States, uh, lead, the leaders have begun to realize after the insanity of the Bush decade that uh, the United States cannot maintain from a financial standpoint and a monetary and a budgetary standpoint this kind of vastly overblown empire. What we have really is an empire of bases, as Chalmers Johnson called it, some between 700 and 1,000 bases around the world. But the United States is going to have to cut back on that as well. The United States couldn't afford this level of... I mean, it could if it chose to, but as some of the mayors said, they couldn't believe that we're building bridges in Kandahar and not in Kansas City or Baltimore. The American infrastructure is crumbling. The American economy is weak and has not recovered. The American educational system is in tatters. Um, it means such deep social problems here in the United States. And the United States cannot go around the world with this kind of uh, interventions everywhere and massive dis- military spending. Uh, by about 2010, the, it was estimated that the United States they spent 1.2 trillion out of its $3 trillion budget on homeland security, intelligence, and military. So 40% of its, of its budget. That's insane. Uh, the United States was spending at that point almost the equivalent of the rest of the world on its military. And when the other factors like intelligence and homeland security were factored in, the United States was spending as much as the rest of the world. And what were we getting for it? We couldn't win wars anyway. Beginning with Korea, the United States has really not had any military victories. Vietnam was a debacle. The United States was was defeated soundly in Vietnam. Korea was a stalemate at best, really a defeat. Uh, The United States has not been able to win in Iraq and Afghanistan. Look at Libya now. Military invasions, this large-scale military interventionism doesn't work. At best, it doesn't work, and at worst, it, it makes situations worse. But our invasion of of Iraq has largely triggered the the nightmare that we've seen, as has our invasion of Afghanistan.
4: What is very interesting to me is I think it was was probably around 2,000 or more years ago that Sun Tzu wrote a book, The Art of War, in which he said that invading and occupying other countries will bankrupt the state. Yeah. So it's uh, kind of like this universally known thing that uh, don't go occupy other countries because eventually you'll go bankrupt. And, we're kind of and it seeing, happened to the
3: Soviets also, right? The Soviet yeah, Empire in exactly. Eastern Europe, what good did that do them? Which mm-hmm. Gorbachev understood, it. he was ready to let it go.
4: Because he knew he couldn't maintain it anymore, because well, he can't maintain it. I don't see the
1: same willingness among the American elite to let it go. No,
3: no the elite has not, uh, not yet been willing to let it go. I was just in Okinawa a few days ago where there's a big struggle against the relocation of the American Marine base from Futenma to Hinoko. And the people of Okinawa are up in arms against this. They're resisting. They're united overwhelmingly. You know, and I was there last summer. Oliver and I went together this summer. I went um, with, with, without him and to support the anti-base forces there. American bases are very unpopular uh, through, throughout the world, and most, more so in Okinawa, where the people of Okinawa have suffered this incredible burden of the American bases there. Uh, over 20% of Okinawa Island's land is taken over by the U.S. military, despite the outspoken opposition of the people of Okinawa. And the United States ally, Shinzo Abe, the prime minister of Japan, is trying to force this, base rate relocation down the throats of the Okinawan people. Again, it's reprehensible that a country that supposedly believes in democracy is willing to, to, to use any means necessary to thwart the popular will of a of people in order to achieve its goals. But that's part of the Asia pivot. It's part of the American security strategy for uh, combating China, for confronting China and the buildup in the Pacific. Uh, Again, today, announcement of increased operations in conjunction with Vietnam, of all places, as part of this effort in the South China Sea to limit and control and quarantine China. Again, but a very militaristic response.
1: Yeah, if only they'd just give it up and let it go and, you know, just... Find something else to do. stop, Stop with the pathological drive to control and own everything. I mean, it's... As if there isn't another world available right there, you know. If they just let it go, you know.
4: Well, they can't own everything in the end, you know. And uh, what they they're what that. they're searching after, yeah. what they're searching for, is a pipe dream. You know, it's they're they're trying mm-hmm. to take something that they can't hold, and it's kind of pointless in the end. I'm kind of interested to see how uh, Putin Putin handles the situation where he's uh, he's all about trade agreements and uh, mm-hmm. energy sales and economic union as opposed to going, he, he wants, to, it seems to me like what he's trying to do very often is build, rebuild the Russian empire, but purely in an economic perspective, instead of actually going in and dominating government. He's Unfairly. just kind of saying, you know what, we really don't give too much of a crap what you do, just as long as you buy our gas. You know, he's, he's, he's
3: kind of like... Well, he's, got, <laughs> he's got a lot of Russia, a lot of Europe uh, dependent on Soviet oil and gas.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you know? But
3: I, no, I, I don't think he's got a vision. He's not a a Trotsky or a Lenin. He doesn't have a a vision for transforming the world. Uh, The early Bolsheviks did. They thought Mm -hmm. that they could have a a system that would be much more in the interests of of humanity. Um, Unfortunately, Russia's political culture and, and the situation they confronted didn't make that possible. But there have to be alternatives to capitalism. There has Mm -hmm. to be a different world, than a world that's dominated by a handful of of wealthy people. Karl Marx's vision was for a form of democratic socialism. That, That, I think, will be the wave of the future. We're just not there yet as a species. We're very, very primitive in the sense that people are motivated by... I mean, I guess it's wrong to say that people are motivated by greed because most of the people I know are not motivated by greed. Mm -hmm. Most of the people I know do not want to accumulate enormous wealth when other people are hungry and starving and living in, in desperate means. I mean, I guess there are a handful of people who have no conscience who are motivated by that, but those are the scum of the earth. You know, they unfortunately get to be in positions of power given the way our world is structured right now but i think most people don't share that those values and uh, don't share those those beliefs and and the the wave of the future is going to be at some point i guess our goal as our goal in in this time in history is that we have the technological capabilities and life on the planet but we have the moral advancement of you know we're barely standing up straight we're barely out of the the caves uh, and so there's this tremendous discrepancy. Our goal right now, our mission, I think, as a civilization, is to get to the future, to not destroy the planet, to not destroy the world, to not end life on the planet. Uh, right now, in our primitive state, in hopes that in the future, a thousand or ten thousand or ten million years from now, human beings will have evolved to the point where they can actually live as you know decent lives, not not yeah. like we see now.
1: Maybe it's to be hoped for. Uh, Amen. Thanks, yeah, Peter. Yeah, Peter, on that, on that note, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there for, for this evening. I just want to uh, thank you for all the work you've done. It's uh, sterling work uh, yes. and much needed. We need more educators like you.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's been fun talking.
1: And everybody should check out Peter's
2: uh, documentary series. Well, the documentary series, Untold History of the United States, also Peter's uh, the... own research. And the, book. And, the book, and the book is, I
3: think, is that the book is out now in or about to be out in eleven languages. So 11 and the documentaries off. are airing around the world. So we we really would love everybody to watch them and to to join us in this struggle.
2: You, you also mentioned there's going to be a kind of kids' version of the book coming
3: out in English. Yes, um, we've okay. got uh, coming out in the next few months. We've got the concise untold history of the United States, which is based on the documentary scripts, a new book and a young readers edition for. 10 to 16 year olds. Uh, we want to get idea. this into the middle schools. And all of our I'm going to be visiting middle schools to speak and to spread, spread the message. And pretty soon there's going to be our graphic novel out. It's probably going to take about another year before the graphic novel comes out.
1: Excellent. Well, awesome. That's That's a very idea. honorable uh, mission you're on there.
3: Yeah. OK, Peter. We'll let you go. Thank you. Thanks
1: again for, for bye joining bye bye. us It's been great. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Stay safe. Bye-bye uh yeah what a nice dude he's a nice dude and he's very you know he's obviously an academic but he's compared to most academics he's
4: very personable he's
1: personable he's he's got the the ability to to at least see 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 what's going on for what it is And, and i mean at the very end there he basically says it's the scum of the earth, basically. <laughs> and, and, you know, what do you do with the scum of the earth? I mean, he said yeah. maybe in 10,000 years it'll all be sorted out. Humanity will evolve. Now. Well, humanity needs to evolve to realize that, you know, being covered in scum uh, from the, at the top, it, you know, you need to wipe that shit off, you know. Uh,
3: yeah,
1: that's the evolution that needs to happen, not mm. to wait until the scum somehow evolve into decent human beings, but for humanity to wake, to wake up and realize that it is the scum of the mm-hmm. earth that are ruling over them right. and to do something about it. I don't know what could be done about it, but at least the awareness that that situation is part of evolution, the major part of evolution.
4: I think people should have a little bit more enlightened self-interest at the very least. Yeah. You know, I mean, they don't even realize how they're being led down the, the path of destruction by these single-minded, greedy, sort of pathocratic psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And they're basically being led right over a cliff yeah. into their own destruction. I mean, because if America were to collapse, it would just be horrible for all of the people. Yeah, ordinary
1: people in the all U.S. All the
4: ordinary people. And um, what are you going to do about it? Well, I think, I think it will take another two to 4,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If the human race survives that long, in about 4,000 years, I think maybe... We'll have had a few more empires, kind of like America, Rome, you know, the British Empire. We've had this sort of series of all these different empires. And
1: finally people get the message.
4: And they've all kind of collapsed the same way, which is they get really belligerent and militarized and suppress all freedom of speech and, you know, get rid of their constitutions or whatever laws that they have. And they're taken over by a giant psychopathic oligarchy. And then they fall. And then there's a little bit of a dark age. And then... You know, everybody gets together and says, "Hey, let's start a new state." They're like, "Yeah, that's a great idea." Then, boom, same thing happens again and again and again. And I think if it happens about seven to eight more times, we might uh, well <laughs> realize what's going on
1: and kind of nip it in the bud before it happens again.
4: Yeah, that's yeah, the only I way to do so. it, right? Think, yeah. You spot the
1: you spot the troublemakers and you say, "Okay, you're not allowed to be in office. You're not allowed of to, any to be description. president. You're not allowed to be president or anything close to it. Here's yeah. here's a shovel. Go dig me a hole."
4: Yeah, I think the biggest, the most important thing is to... uh, And if you
1: act up, you're going in it.
4: ...to recognize the Trumans and Obamas of the world, these kind of really mediocre, weak-willed people, because they are ultimately the big problem because they get exploited so easily by these sort of rich, elite banking Wall Street interests or whatever. Mm. And uh, that's probably... It's
1: in their nature.
4: It's in their nature.
1: All right, folks, we're going to call it. Uh, and out there thanks uh, to our listeners and our chatters and thanks again to Peter uh, Kuznick Kuznick uh, you should check him out and him and Oliver Stone have been doing some great work on the web so uh, uh, check it out um, so until next week
2: yeah take care of yourselves
1: and each other and, and we'll see you then bye 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 bye